From runasradio.com, you're listening to Run As Radio, the internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell. This is Brandon Wen announcing show number 863, DevOps in 2023 with guest April Edwards. Recorded Wednesday, December 14th, 2022. Run As Radio is produced each week by Sound Thoughts, LLC. For more information, visit soundthoughtsllc.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash runasradio. Hi, this is Richard Campbell. Thanks for listening to Run As Radio. Today, my guest is April Edwards, who's a cloud developer advocate at Microsoft. April started her career in ops and then moved to dev, embracing DevOps after many painful projects and seeing the light. She works with people to help them automate all the things and is also a HashiCorp ambassador. Welcome. Thank you, Richard. Very, very good to be here. We have been one person removed for a really long time. We have. I've known your work. You've known my work. Like, we've gotten around. But now we get to hang out together. And I'm excited about that. That's that's always a good thing. We do. And we're on opposite ends of the earth as well. Pretty much. Yeah. Good eight hours apart. Yeah. You know, I'm for, I have definitely taken advantage of the fact that I am close to the mothership. You are. It's only a two hour drive to Redmond for me. Yeah. It's more of a 10 hour flight for me. So 10 hour flight and nine hours of time change. And then you're wrecked for a while. Like that's hard. Just jet lag. You know, you'll sleep when you're dead. You'll sleep when you're dead, Richard. <laughs> I, I think that used to be my tagline in Twitter uh, yeah. back in yeah. the day. Is it just me or is there almost too many DevOps offerings inside of Microsoft now? There are a ton. And <laughs> I had someone recently, I've had someone, I've had many people ask me, can you do videos on DevOps on Azure? And I'm like, sure, which part? They're like, yeah. all of it. And I'm like, I can't. Like, I, I just genuinely can't. Yeah, it's too large a number. We've embedded it in so many places to make yeah. it easier. No, I can't do that. And you know, I, I, I want to help the community. I want to mm. make better content. I want to answer all their questions, but that's a lot of content. Yeah, it's a, a huge spectrum of things. And it it also speaks to there isn't one right way either. Like it's just, there's a bunch of tools for a, a bunch of reasons. Mm-hmm. But how often do you run into this mindset that largely this is a developer problem anyway? Like let the developers deal with it. For me as a sysadmin, I, I don't have a whole lot to do. Just let them run their scripts. I think we have... I grew up in the tech industry and grew up. I started in the tech industry and we were all siloed. We were mm-hmm. completely siloed. Sure, there's walls to toss stuff over. Huge wall. And yeah. we throw everything over the fence. The devs do it. They're like, I wrote this code. It's ops problems now, or it's QA's problem, or it's whoever, security's problem. We always throw stuff over the fence. We never take blame. We never take ownership. Yeah. And a lot of that is just because we write some code, we do a thing, and we wrote it, let's say, six, eight weeks ago. Richard, what'd you eat for breakfast six weeks ago? <laughs> I don't know what I ate for breakfast today. <laughs> exactly. I, I, will, I can't even tell you what code I wrote, why I did it. Yeah. So when we start doing things in this siloed manner and throwing things over the fence and someone goes, why did you do it this way? Unless you took diligent notes, which yeah, we don't. No. We, all, we don't. We don't document everything. Um, you're not going to know why you did it. And and then there's blame. Oh, it's your fault. You should have caught it in testing or secure, whatever. And and we very much get it. DevOps is a dev thing. And it's not. It's an everyone thing. Sure. And when I talk about DevOps, it's 80% a culture change. Yeah. And it's learning how to work together. And you think about the ops side. You know, we're incentivized to keep the lights on 24 by 7. Yeah. That's our job. Mm-hmm. As a developer, 
I need to push new features. Totally. Those two things conflict. And that's part of why we have these silos. So we need to break that down. We yeah. need to, to incentivize our teams to say, we're going to deliver value to our customers, our end users, the people we're delivering, whatever it is we're delivering to together. And we need to be incentivized together. We need to deliver the same things together. And it's okay to do these things. Yeah. Um, and, and it is very much an ops thing. And, and when we start talking cloud, you start talking infrastructure as code, automation, and I'm going to drop a line that might really upset some people, but I'm going to go for it because I like living on the edge. Mm -hmm. um, everyone's a developer. Yeah. You know what? That's becoming less insulting. It is. <laughs> We're all writing code. We're all writing code. Now, when I say the word developer, I don't mean you can write a website or sure. code all the things. You're not a programmer. Right. You are telling a computer to do something for you via yeah. a script. That is a developer. It, to me, the real transformation was when I no longer kept those scripts on a USB key in my pocket that I now put them in a place that other people could run them, which made me write them very differently. Mm -hmm. As soon as somebody else is going to execute this code, ooh, okay, maybe I should have some meaningful error messages and, and you know, sanitize my inputs and things like that. Yeah. And then when we, this has been a routine conversation on run as too. It's like, when you put that stuff into source control, that's a good day. Yes. You know, like it's throw it, have a beer. And I'm still having those conversations with people like, yeah, source control is important. And they're like, well, why? And I'm like, okay, well, think of it this way. You write a document or, well, you can even say a script and you do V1, V2, V3. We, you know, you version it with the naming, yeah. but it's just different things. And then someone comes in and changes it. How do you know they changed it? Yeah. And what they changed, you know, and, and who changed it? And, and you don't know what they changed. Are you auditing it? I don't want to audit no. all my changes and all my documents and all my scripts. Um, and if you go to deploy it and it doesn't work, why did it not work? Because mm -hmm. you didn't test it. You didn't. And, and now what? You could have rolled it back. How do you roll it back? Right. Like you have all those choices now, uh, especially if you don't know who made the change. I mean, when we look at I always talk about security in the cloud and we're going to talk cloud for a second. 95% of cloud breaches are due to human mistakes. Inevitably. Yeah. Um, Every time we're humans, we screw up every, I can't even write my name without an issue. I'll be honest. <laughs> like it, anytime I try to write, I even just write my name with pen and paper, forget typing it. Um, I misspell my name, but forget configuring firewalls, configuring IP addresses. Mm -hmm. We see it all the time where someone has misconfigured an IP address. We've had outages in Azure that are because someone misconfigured an IP address yep. and it brought down our data center. Mm. We've all been there. Mm. Yeah. We don't want to touch things with our fingers. That's bad. No. Yeah. It, it just has consequences. And if it's, mm -hmm. and if it doesn't have a clear trail like that, it's hard to even do a root cause analysis or find your way back. And that's terrifying. Like it's yep. the, the scope of stuff just keeps getting bigger. I, I, I don't like Azure outages. I don't think anybody does, but at the same time, it's like, we are all mortal beings here. Yes. And everybody has their day at the zoo. I like that day at the zoo. I yeah. call it my day in hell, but I like the day at the zoo better. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's that's a great one. I think we borrowed that from Ferris Bueller, of all things, oh, right? Everybody has a day it. at the zoo. Love it. Oh, that's, I'm going to start using that. I think it's – and it's so much about, you know um, – Source control. And how do we revert changes? Because mm -hmm. that's the big thing. We're all going to have an outage. We're all going to have an issue. We're going to have something that went to production that didn't go well. How do we revert that? And that's that's the DevOps thing. That's another benefit of it. Yeah. Um. And and you know, you and I have talked about firefighting in the past. I don't enjoy being a firefighter. No. I'm not a firefighter. That's not my job title. Um. I don't want to do that again. Yeah. There are people who are hooked on the rush. You know, the great thing about being in a firefight all the time, you know what to work on. Like it's these are all. These are all 
you know, I'm using covey terms here. These are all category yes. one stuff. That yep. doesn't matter what else is. And it's like, if I'm not fighting a fire, then I actually have to make decisions on what to do. And that's way harder. It's so much easier to just be in the fire. Exactly. And I have to look busy. Yeah. And there's all kinds of preventative work stuff that could be done and probably should be done. But it's all tedious in comparison to putting out a fire. And then you and then you get a company culture that hero worships the firefight, right? That they, you also feel good because everybody's, hey, you did it. As opposed to the real thing, which is like, why did that happen? Like, why? And why do we make sure? How do we make sure it never happens again? And it's 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 that blameless postmortem of why it happened, tracing it, and and not pointing fingers. That's part of the DevOps thing. We don't want to point fingers. I mean, someone pushed the big red button where they shouldn't have, but it's having a blame. How do we fix it so it doesn't happen again? You're right. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and you're right. People like being the hero, and it's something that when I was in the operational space, and I worked at companies where open source wasn't a huge thing. Yeah. People were really protective over their IP. They're like, no, these are my scripts. This is my domain. These are my babies. And as I started moving into automation a lot more, it stopped being mine and ours, our right. infrastructure. And I'm like, yeah, go ahead and break my server. I'll just re-automate. I'll just redeploy it with an automate, yeah. you know, whatever I was doing at the time. I can redeploy a server, no problem. Now, tier one system's a whole other story. So please don't break those for me. But mm-hmm. I could recover my systems very differently. I could function day to day very differently. But yeah, people going out and finding work and, you know, people want to look busy. And that's something I really saw a lot in the operation space. And developers do it as well. You know, developers do lines of code. They're like, oh, I wrote a thousand lines of code. Yeah. And you're like, like that's a meaningful metric. Yeah, it's not. But that's that's (laughs) what they're trained. Oh, I wrote a hundred, you know, thousand lines of code. I must be doing my job. And same thing with the firefighting on the operational space, you know. And Jeffrey Snover had a great quote, and he goes, in a lousy economy, nothing is more important than automation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it you're not going to automate your way out of a job. And I think that is a lot of the conversations I have when people move to the cloud. They're like, but I won't have a job. I'm like, no, we need you. We yeah. need you to be proactive, not reactive. So you're no longer going to be a firefighter. You're going to wear a cape, swoop in, and automate all the things. Um and it can be hard to automate. It's not easy. Yeah. And that's what people have to realize. Like, there yeah. will be tears. There will be a lot of tears. And Yeah. And, and the struggle. Mm-hmm. You know, you also don't get to run them as many times as possible. But it's same. Like, whoever got to the bottom of their to-do list ever. Oh. Right. I mean, I did, but it probably wasn't, like, related to work. <laughs> you know? Uh, but yeah, my 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 to do list of things I can automate is endless. Yes. But I have to pick the things that hurt most. Start yeah. there and go with it, and that's what I do. I pick right. This is a pain point. This is a bottleneck, and I'm working with a someone internally, um, doing some processes internally. And I'm like, look, I want you to go through the process. When you get stuck, note the pain points. Yeah, we will automate it out. It will be gone because yeah. if that's slowing you down tenfold. We need you to keep moving because they're like, oh, I'm spending all this time doing X. And I'm like, yeah, let's let's automate that out of the way. Done. Well, and building the automation often takes longer than just doing the task, but not in the long term. So it's like, yeah, continue down the task because we have a deliverable. Yep. But leave yourself a note to remember that this is harder than it needs to be and can be made better. And not only that, I mean, we we talk about getting hit by a bus or, mm-hmm. you know, some people like saying winning the lottery. I don't like that because if I won the lottery, it'd still work. I, I actually want to. I love what I do for a living. Um I wouldn't work full time, but I, I still go to work. But let's say, you know, um, something happens to you. Let's say you want to go on vacation. Yeah, that's the big when one. When people, and I'm an American by birth. I live in the UK now, but as an American by birth, when I took a vacation, I took my phone with me. I took my laptop with me. I have gotten out of that mm-hmm. habit. And I talk to people all the time, especially in small organizations, lean teams. We're really going with lean teams right now because of the economy, what's right. going on in the world. 
Um, and they're like, oh, yeah, but I, I can't take a vacation because I got to do this thing. And it's a 15 minute task every day or I got to do this thing. And I talk to these people about let's automate that out, because if if something happens and I'm like, do you have kids? And they're like, yeah, I have kids. What if your child gets terminally ill? Yeah. You, you Are you going to go to work and do that thing or are you going to automate that so the thing still runs and all you need to do is check in on the team and you have a well-oiled machine? And they're like, yeah. oh. And I said, you know, don't say it will never happen to me. I could – I'm out of fingers and toes to count on the times I've walked into work on a Monday or Tuesday morning. Someone's passed away over yep. the weekend. Accidents. Um, I can tell you the times that I've worked with a colleague that had a death in the family. Parent, child, dog – um, losing a dog, I'm not going to lie. That's serious business, right? Yeah. Um, that That's hard. So you need to be able to take that time off and have that balance in your life. But it's also that punishment of when I did take the time off, I got back to a thousand plus emails, the wheels had fallen off and everybody was angry with me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I And I, I have a great story that I always talk about. Uh, I went on vacation for 10 days. Uh, mm. It was about 10 years ago. Um, on a boat in the middle of the ocean, no cell phone, no laptop. It was amazing. Got back and my manager was crying. He literally was crying on the Monday morning because we we had lost everything. And right. um, I spent the next 72 hours working and they didn't let me leave my desk because I had to fix everything. And I cried. There were tears. I remember like lying on my floor at 3, 3.30 in the morning repairing exchange servers and fixing clusters. And, and we had such issues restoring our systems. Um, but I was happy to take that vacation until I got back. Yeah. And then I felt like I was being punished. Yeah. And that's not that's not how I want to leave my life. And that's and that's really how I got into DevOps. So many painful experiences of feeling like I was getting beaten up every day or every week. And I said, you know what? There's a better way. And it was learning to embrace infrastructure as code mm -hmm. and learning, oh wow, I can deploy these servers and I don't have to wait for four days. Yeah. And I well, and and I'm no longer bottlenecking all the other teams with tickets because I, because everything is manual and I have to touch it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, as you automate things, things get done so much faster. Yeah. You're like, wow, I can breathe. I can have lunch. I can stop and make a cup of coffee. I did feel like as the DevOps move, it took off on the development side, it put a lot of pressure on IT because they started mm -hmm. iterating so fast. And the fact that deployments were still manual. And so it was a ticket that showed up to me. And somehow I had to do this. It's like, you're really going to send me one of these every day? And they're like, we want to send you four a day. This is just the entry level ticket for now. This is buy in price. Yeah. No, you you were you were used to doing this twice a year. Mm -hmm. Now it's every day and it and it needs to be more. And what's amazing is you get used to once a day and then it becomes easy to do several times a day. Yeah. Once an hour. And it's it's incredible once you get used to the regular cadence. Um, so when I when I used to engage with customers when I was on the engineering side, we would do a one week sprint with our customers. So you'd mm -hmm. have infrastructure folks, you had developers, et cetera. And we'd have to teach them DevOps principles, get them out of waterfall, get them out of just bad working practice. And we it was like setting a house on fire. And people always ask, you know, how do you work in cycles? And I said, we started with one week sprints. Why? Because they hurt. Yeah. And it forces you into the ceremonies. And, and it's just a few weeks of that, a lot of tears. And then you're you're working with the customer to implement things, technologies, and then going, right, now we'll back off to two-week sprints. And then we'd find our working cadence together. But yeah. it was setting everything on fire, forced everyone to realize how to leverage their time, how to use their time and say, actually, you're right. I need to automate this thing because I've got a week to get it done or two weeks to get it done. Um, yeah, no other way to go about it. So, yeah, setting things on fire sometimes lights all the fires under everyone's tails and they all get going. 
Yeah, it's only when you make it. That's an old J.P. Morgan line. Once I realized I couldn't do it all myself, I had to embrace other ways. Absolutely. And then you start collaborating with other people a lot more. Yeah. And, and, um, and funny how much fun that is once you get there. But it's like you have to go through a certain level of suffering to get there. Yes. And it's nice to share with people. Yeah. Like just, hey, I've got a problem. Oh, I have a solution for that. I've got a script or I've got a thing. Let me help you. Like the mindset of the people change immediately. And that was something I noticed as well. Like I started working in different organizations where we were just sharing information. We were sharing data. And then, oh, yeah, I got a script. Here you go. And I'm like, oh, wow. Do you want like money for this? Do you want like my scripts in return? No, just take it. And I'm like, oh, people are sharing. What a concept. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. Well, and also recognizing when you get into those cross-cutting teams, like there's stuff that devs can solve for you very, very easily once they understand and vice versa. Right, like, there's stuff you can take off the ta- uh, table for them as an IT, and it's like, don't roll your own authentication. I have a mechanism. Here are the APIs, and now you know you're no you no longer deal deal with the accounts and the roles and so forth. That's all external to you. Just implement it this way. Like it, exactly, it's it's hugely powerful. It, it's massive, and being able to work together, and and I think also the thing is, you you learn as a developer to not love infrastructure but have a comprehension of it, mm-hmm. how systems work, how things interact. And that makes you empathetic to the dependencies you're building into your code. Yeah. And same with the infrastructure side. You don't need to learn to write what your developer's doing. You don't need to be a front-end developer, a back-end developer, a programmer, et cetera. You just have empathy for what they're doing and understand, right, this thing does this and how they connect. Because so many times we've had these giant monoliths we've un- had to untangle for years on yeah. end. Um, and many of us still haven't untangled some of our big monolithic systems, but it's having that empathy for what they're doing. And you can learn so much from each other. Um, I, I've worked with data developers that knew more about data structures and data infrastructure and performance mm-hmm. than I ever have, right. having done infrastructure performance and and scalability and manageability. And I'm like, huh, like, oh, I can do this thing with this code to help the infrastructure out. And I'm like, Really? Because I hate SQL. I'm like, yeah, yeah, let me do this. Let me do that for you. <laughs> Here yeah, we go. Okay. Yeah. Easy I made fun. a new best friend that day. Yeah. I made a new best friend. It's great. And April would interrupt for one moment. His very important message. This episode of Run As Radio is brought to you by the Humanitarian Toolbox. Humanitarian Toolbox builds open source software for disaster relief organizations. One of the leading projects called Two Weeks Ready helps individuals, families, and communities prepare for disasters using smartphones. HDBox builds and operates this and other applications on behalf of a variety of disaster response organizations, and they need your help. Go to htbox.org for more information or to make a tax-deductible donation. HDBox is a 501c3 U.S. registered charity. Your donations help support the creation of this life-saving software. Thanks. And we're back. It's Run As Radio. I'm Richard Campbell. That's April Edwards. And we've been commiserating over the challenges of getting down a DevOps practice and how those different pieces appear uh, and, and being successful with it. So when it, you know, we, it is a culture thing. And I think we've, you know, had a good conversation around culture pieces. But then it also becomes tooling because the don't worry, this is easy. This is doable. We, you'll be successful with this, you know, to, to change, it allows you to make that culture easier like if there wasn't you could do this without tooling but it's way harder absolutely and i think where microsoft has done a really good job and i don't say that i'm going to take off my microsoft hat for a minute Mm -hmm. the reason why i chose to work at microsoft is because we have the tooling to to enable people to do more and we're getting better and better at getting closer to the developer Mm -hmm. um so for example 
uh, infrastructure as code. I like talking about infrastructure as code if yeah. you haven't already noticed. Um, we have a tool called noobsgen, N-U-B-E-S-G-E-N.com, that lets you generate Terraform and Bicep code for the cloud. It spits out a template for you. Done. Get started. We also have code repositories where you can get started. But we have tools. And then we've embedded it into so many products in Azure to say, you can build the thing, download a template. Done. Um, there's so many different ways to build templates for things that used to not exist. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. And I always tell people, like, it's already built. Don't reinvent it. Go yeah. go start with a thing. Build on top of that. Build your foundations. And that's what it's about. We're doing such a great job of enabling people to do more and get started so quickly. We, we have various products that, again, not trying to promote the products we do, but the technology behind it, you stand up the thing in the Azure portal. It connects into a repository, whether it's in GitHub, Bitbucket, GitLab, et cetera, mm-hmm. or Azure DevOps takes your code that's there for the infrastructure, takes your code that's there for the application, hooks it in. You don't need to be a developer. You don't need to be a programmer. You could literally say, yeah, that's where the developer's code sits. Hook it in, deploys your website pretty quickly. And then it automatically builds out a working um, CICD workflow for you. And you're done. You have a base template to work from. And you're going to see more and more of that in our products. Sure. Lowering the barrier to entry. I'm also seeing the ops responsibility of, if you're going to really make your servers cattle and not pets, you need all that infrastructure as code pieces to stand up the stuff and tear it back down again. Mm-hmm. But I'm starting to appreciate the declarative security parts in that too. Creating identities, the, you know, implementing the service principles, like all of that is just part of the script. It is. Where once upon a time, because we weren't, they didn't change that often. Like largely we did this all by hand. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But not at the cadence that they expect to go now. No. And and, and um, I was doing a demo live recently, and I could stand up all the secure, all the identity through PowerShell. Right. Or I could do it through Bash, whatever mm-hmm. your preference is. Whatever makes you um, happy. I could go through, set it all out, done, and I can put it in a CICD tool. So every time I deploy a new system, set up the identity if I want to, run that script, just call that script, and we're done. It's set it up for me. Done. It's there. Easy. Yeah. We we have made everything as code. Policy is code as well. So if you're using things like Azure Policy, so you're deploying infrastructure, what compliance, what policies do you need to put in place? What guardrails? And the, we can check the policy and make sure that whatever we're deploying to our infrastructure fits our policies. Um, it's it's a huge amount of power, but we are going to everything as code, and that's why I really impress everyone as a developer. Yeah, effectively, and so mm-hmm. it's not the it's the ops part of DevOps. It's that ah, you're kind of dev anyway. It's it's the same thing. You've got the welcome same problem. Welcome to the club. Yeah, welcome Everyone's to the club. one big happy family now. Yeah, we one all have the family. same essential problem where we need to express in an automatic way these these implementations. So I love the policy as code part. I think that's really interesting mm-hmm. that we start integrating that that piece in as well. What are the other bits that people are finding friction points on that just need to be part of the pipeline? You know, we see so much where people are trying to integrate state of something. Um, and I actually had a question today about, okay, I've deployed my infrastructure. How do I maintain the state? Mm-hmm. Um, how do you run checks against your infrastructure, et cetera? How do we know something's changed? And and there are there's various tools for that out there. Um, the other thing we see is testing. Now, as an infrastructure person, I'm like, why would I test? I'm not a developer. Yeah, you yeah. know, like that. That used to be my mindset. Like, and then when I'd run a script, I'd literally just push my script out and see what happened. I'd literally cross my fingers, hope that nothing broke, yeah. and it worked. Now we can test things, and I the testing is the big thing. Like when people are like, "Well, I did a thing and it broke," and I'm like, "What'd your test do?" Well, I didn't run any tests. So testing is the new is like kind of that kind of putting that little pretty bow on your your automation. 
you know, what is going to happen when you push the button and you know what's going to happen before sure. it does it. And then you can not deploy it. That's an option. Deploy it into a test environment, run all your tests, see how things perform, and you can revert your changes or you make those changes into the next iteration. Well, the same way that you can ask PowerShell, what would happen if I ran this? Yes. Right? You have you have that mode. The idea that that all that infrastructure is code, you'd say, okay, what would happen if this script's run? Don't do it. Just show me what would happen. Absolutely. Because there's a cost implication. There could be a performance implication. There, sure. I actually had a customer, and it wasn't my, one of my customers, um, a customer recently uh, ran a pipeline, didn't test it. It deleted all of their infrastructure. <laughs> Which it probably was supposed to do. We were supposed to put it back afterwards, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But they, they hadn't recovered it. They hadn't clocked it. And the infrastructure was gone for a, a certain period of time. So they mm -hmm. re-ran the pipeline and it redeployed it. But they hadn't clocked that it destroyed the entire infrastructure because they hadn't ran any tests against it. Right. But being able to know this is when we deploy. And it gives you traceability. And when customers are talking about compliance and regulation, I said, you can export that out. Put it into a file somewhere. Save it. You want to reference exactly what you told it to do? Yeah. You can do that. Yeah, we've got the space for it, too. And I think it's an interesting part of just keeping a copy of each deployment that happens so you know the differences between them all. It's They're just mm -hmm. text. Absolutely. Like, from an audit perspective, that's really powerful. But also just an insight perspective of why did that one work and this one not? Why did, why, why did that go so quickly and that one not? They you know. To me, one of the best things done in testing are the performance evaluations. And we have some, there, there are great tools you can do. And, and when you talk about testing, and this this is where it gets tricky, people are like, well, I can't run it. Well, when they say, well, it worked on my machine because yeah. they tested it locally. There's a whole other facet of testing that we talk about. Are we testing on the environment you're running it on or mm. a replica environment effectively, not your production? Um, are you using things like dev containers? Again, the word devs in there, it, but allows you to work in a similar environment. So if you're on a PC or a Mac or a Linux machine that you're working on, it doesn't matter. We've we've leveled that playing field so that everyone can develop the same thing and have the same answers when they go to deploy it. Right. And that, I guess that's part of the, the whole scripted model is that anybody in theory should be able to run this now with the right credentials. Absolutely. And, and just and with a dev container, you can it's portable. It's secure. You can run it anywhere. Yeah. So whether you're running it on your machine, I could hand you my code and you spin it up in a dev container and go, okay, it works or it doesn't work or whatever. But the dev container also gives you the prereq. So if you think about getting started on a project, we want to write a PowerShell script. Uh, we need PowerShell installed. Right. But if we're if we don't have it installed, it takes time to do that. We might need access to some other things. The dev container pre-bakes all of that and all the other tools we might need testing tools, linting tools, formatting tools, anything else you could think of, it's in there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So dev container is not just for dev. <laughs> Correct. It's for everyone. And yeah. every project should have a dev container. Just as a practice so that you have that ability to run it up. And, and I mean, generally Absolutely. speaking, the cloud is very tolerant to this. As long as you're careful with your names, you can create another instance of, that, uh, of an, a set of infrastructure in the cloud evaluate it. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's generally the way I've done things is then we flop the the, the DNS is over to the new instance. Yep. So, but that was still pretty manual, you know, at the time that we were doing it that way. That was manual. We've automated that in other ways. So we, mm -hmm. again, things that are baked, you talk about tooling, things that are baked in the product. Um, and actually they're in various products. So if I want to run against an environment in the cloud, let's say virtual machines, um, I could call it my dev or my test environment, whatever. I could create another environment and call it pre-prod and have another set of virtual machines and and run the test against those specific environments. And that enables us to segment that. Right. Um, and, and you can use a DNS flip, but actually 
the tooling, which we're talking about being super critical, allows you to segment those environments and carve them out. And, right. and literally, it's it's just calling a group of machines. And with the cloud, we can set up an identical environment and spin it down when we're done. So we can use our infrastructure's code and say, spin me up you know, a VM scale set that lets me scale out to 25 VMs if I need it. Yeah. Spin it down when we're done. And we have a like-for-like like environment to production. Because yeah, it's literally running effectively in the same space, just with a different set of names. Yeah, exactly. Different set of names. Not, you know, otherwise not publicly available. But same configuration. And that's the consistency piece. So yeah. that changes the story of how we do stuff. And I've worked on various customer projects where they literally had a single physical box under a desk. Right. And they're like, oh, this is critical for our for our company. Mm-hmm. Like, okay. We, you know, this is, this is absolutely critical software. Um, our team ripped it apart, got into the cloud as a virtual machine, and the customer was you know, mind blown. Right. It's a VM. I said, yeah, watch this. So over the next couple months, we ripped out the applications, broke them down. We made them into scale sets. So every time one of their developers or engineers needed to test their software and a specific type of software that had to run a simulation, it scaled up virtual machines in Azure for that um, engineer. They ran their software in two minutes versus the 12 hours it took on that physical box under the desk. Right. Scaled it down. And then any engineer that needed access to the testing software did the same. They they literally pushed a button. It triggered some VM scale sets and then brought it down. So their yeah. cost was, you know, we'll call it a few dollars to run a simulation for a few minutes yeah. and spun it up, tore it down, done. So I got in, I, I started doing that when we had, when we had um, high performance e-commerce sites where we needed to know what the the performance would be like. And we built this huge set of tests to evaluate all these different pieces, but they ran for hours. Mm-hmm. And in the old days, we'd run it over a weekend. Yeah. And but the, the problem I found was that when the devs came back on Monday to all of this, these list of performance problems, it took them the whole week to fix them. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so we did this scale set model. This is before scale sets even existed. To, the goal was to get the t- entire test suite run in 15 minutes. And the theory was... You push, like the, the team finishes, they push. Now they go get a coffee and celebrate their awesomeness for pushing. Yeah. In the meantime, the entire, we, we broke out 20 instances of the site, ran, broke the tests out into, tw- into, into chunks, ran them all in parallel. By the time they got back from coffee, the error report was there. Here's all the performance problems. The, the thing that it was, to me, that was important was the code was still in their heads at that point. Yes. So they went to work immediately fixing it. And I think this is the part of DevOps that people often miss is that when we iterate this quickly, we get rid of all the context shift time Mm -hmm. so that you're still working the same problem. You're still tied to that problem because it was only a few minutes ago. It's just that now the machines have done their evaluations and come back with some results. And now you could get straight into improving that. Absolutely. And you have, and you're doing smaller changes. That's the other thing you have to think about. You're not reinventing the wheel when we talk about pushing changes every hour, every day, you're, you're, you are literally making small incremental changes yeah. um, every day because hopefully that incremental change won't break everything. Um, and if it does, you revert it, but you test it. But yes, it's fresh in your heads. Because yeah. again, like I said to you before, I mean, what did you have for breakfast, you know, several weeks ago? I mean, I can't even remember breakfast yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and more saliently, it's like if it's been more than a day or two, that uh, you could give that code to anybody at this point because nobody remembers. Absolutely. So absolutely, and and that's the and that's the other thing of DevOps. It's it's the Dev practices of Agile practices pairing up with people. Yeah. Uh, so when we when we talk to people about 
yeah, I don't care about the code. And I said, sit with the developer for a day or this task. And it might be an hour, two hours, 30 minutes. Watch them do the task. You may not understand the code. That's fine. You understand the process they're going through, yeah. how they're developing, what they're doing to deploy. And I said, the pair programming programming part is getting that empathy for the teams. It's understanding their process and yeah. just seeing it and experiencing it. Because you may find something go, oh, wow, you're doing it this way. Mm. Let me help you make that better. I, th- I think a huge part of that empathy is just understanding that everybody's job is hard. Mm-hmm. You know, I did a bunch of lunch and learns back in the day where we were showing the, you know, the different jobs to each person, yep. the, uh, to the various teams over pizza. And to me, they were like, well, why are we doing this? Like, we're not going to do their jobs. And I'm like, I want you to walk out of the room going, wow, that job is hard, right? Like just the, because that empathy to recognize that everybody's heavy lifting. Yes. Uh, they, they, they all have different challenges in their responsibilities, whether that be uptime, pushing out a, you know, a complex feature going into, into the field happens in a bunch of stages and how you break those things down. Like that stuff's hard. It is fun. It's not easy to, to, to get a feature that'll take a year ultimately to be right. And it has to be tried in a bunch of different uh, stages. But I'll, and I, again, in my life in performance tuning, I was the person overseeing as that feature is being deployed, not saying we, we couldn't build it. We really, really needed it. But I need to provision new equipment to be able to support the load of that, mm-hmm. that feature. So yep. part of their slow rolling of it, and at some point we were even feature switching it, where we turn it on for an hour and measure the impact of the feature and then shut it back off again because it was going to cripple the whole site. Yeah, absolutely. And I think when I work with customers on on that kind of feature testing and load testing, uh, we can just spin something up, spin it down yeah. in the cloud. It has changed the way we test things. And when customers look to go to the cloud, like, oh, we're just going to lift and shift and then we'll optimize later. I always say to them, look, unless you're trying to get your way out of a data center contract in like the next six months, which yeah. I've worked with customers that have done that. They were in that situation, yeah. Yeah, oh God. It, it, it's going to be a messy migration regardless. But trying to optimize your application stack from day one is critical mm-hmm. because there's so much cost savings. So when people go to the cloud and they're like, yeah, we don't save a lot. No, you're running VMs. Yeah. A VM is a VM no matter where you go. You got to pay licensing. You got to deal with the hardware. You got to manage and patch them. You got to patch the OS. You got to protect them. And just carried it with you to another location. Yeah, you have you cut you took all the overhead. You're just you're paying for it by the month now. Yeah, and so you're not taking advantage of the cloud. But you know, leveraging things that you can spin up and spin down. Yeah, minimal cost. Um, websites. Um, we have there's a there's a product that came out called Azure Load Testing last year, mm-hmm. and I was really excited about it. Now it's only been picked up by the devs. I'll be honest, because it uses some kind of J meter. Um, tasks and everything, but it allows the developers to go back to the infrastructure team and say, yeah, okay, we may have borked the infrastructure because we're overloading the system, et cetera. Right. Um, but it, it's still a great tool you can throw into a pipeline to test your code and uh, test your infrastructure, but it's hasn't been picked up a lot, but there's so many different ways we can load test now and yeah. and tests we can run. And it's, it's so great. It's so great to be able to just, it, it's a benefit of the cloud that we don't leverage enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and when people are thinking, oh, I want to, I want to automate a thing, and and again, I will tell people, automate when you're on prem as well. Yeah, it's not just for the cloud. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it does make it easier when it's someone else's hardware, and you can use min- minutes, little uh, little minutia types of compute instead of masses of your own data center space. Or, or basically saying, I can't do this without buying gear, and now I have yes, you know, a six month timeline on this. So, and I got to go talk to CFO. Like none of that is fun, and so we no, tend not to no. do it. Yes, we just say sorry, can't have it. Yeah, 
move on, not find another be a way. Thing. The, at least with the cloud, when you've got those options, when you have that access, they just go, let's fire this up. Let's spend an afternoon on this mm-hmm. and experiment with this technology or this approach. And no, we're going to shut it all off at the end. It'll have cost us a few dollars, but we'll know a lot more. I, I also, I mean, so much of this stops being opinion and starts being, okay, well, we did it now. Let's look at the data because that lands with everybody on the yes. same side of the problem. Like we're all sitting around the table looking at the projected image saying, well, this is what the data says. What do we, how do we interpret this? And that's the big thing. I, DevOps was always a theory. So you and I have both read Gene Kim's um, Phoenix Project, mm-hmm. and he talks about the theories of DevOps and the practices of it. But bringing forth the hard data to your organization and going, right, we spun this up in the cloud. We spent three hours on it. We're able to do X, Y, and Z and pull that data back to the organization. That's the value add. Yeah. Um, and the mo- when you're monitoring your systems and knowing how you can iterate and do things faster. I was talking to someone recently using a product where they have less downtime and they actually had the stats. Like in the past year, he said, we used to deploy uh, once every three months. Right. And now they're repl- now they're deploying new features three times a day. Uh, and they talked about how less downtime, how little downtime they were then having. They could compare their downtime stats because they have to deliver an SLA. Right. So taking back small metrics to your organization and going, we achieved X, you know, starting off with a goal. Let's see what happens. A little bit of a hypothesis, a little bit of trial and error and and see how easy is it to get this into the cloud? A, B, and what happens when we do it? Mm-hmm. I know where we're at. Uh, exactly. It- DevOps has definitely gotten easier. The tools are better. like, And yet there's lots of folks that are still not there. You're making a whole show just on this topic alone these days, right? I am. I host what's called the DevOps Lab. We feature DevOps topics, and that could be anything from automation, end-to-end delivery. Um, and we always look for show ideas. So if people are out there listening to this and going, you know, I want to know about X or want to know about Y, reach out. Mm-hmm. We can get the content out to you. We can get some blogs out. Uh, we can potentially get some more videos out. And we do quite a bit of videos. We've, we're hosted on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Um, and we we try to really listen to the community and see what the community wants to hear. We also feature a lot of DevOps-enabled products. And I can tell you that in 2023, there are going to be some cool product feature releases coming, and uh, they will get featured on the DevOps Lab. Awesome. Uh, April, so much fun to talk to you. It's, it's great to just go back into why we're doing this. It's not obvious to everyone, the value that that it really presents to folks. And it is actually getting easier. Not only that we have the success stories, but that the, the tooling and the options and the knowledge availability has gone up and make our lives easier. Absolutely. And it's a great path. Richard, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. I've really, really a lot of fun. Thanks again for coming on. Thank you. And we'll talk to you next time on Run As Radio. 